This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Now, today we're kicking off a, a series called Lumber. And uh, I believe that for the next few weeks, God is going to open up a couple of scriptures for us. And we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be offended. Now, you don't have to look too hard to find somebody that's offended today. You don't have to look too hard to find something that is offensive. And it's pretty interesting in that. So we're going to dive straight into a story from the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 6, where a lot of people get offended by Jesus. All right, so watch this. Mark 6, verse 1, Jesus left there, so he's leaving, he's traveling, and went to his hometown, so he's going to go to Nazareth. Jesus left there and went to Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, please leave this up for just a second. Let me break this scripture down for you. Because this is a story that appears in almost all of the Gospels. All right, in other times, we're going to see that Jesus shows up, and he's, he's now become a rabbi. I mean, this would have been kind of being a pastor in his day and age. He's, he's going around and teaching people about the Bible and helping people learn principles of the Bible. So he's kind of taken on a rabbinical role, and he shows up in his hometown. And what is not unusual is that when they had church, if there was somebody there that was kind of a notary guest, they, they would ask them to read the Scripture. All right, so Jesus is asked, and if you know the story, he reads the Scripture. More than likely, it's actually uh, what was supposed to be read that day. It's from Isaiah chapter 61, and he stands up and he reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he kind of stops reading, and he says, Today, in your hearing, this Scripture has been fulfilled. Now, this is an unusual moment because this is his hometown. All right, there are more than likely people in the crowd who have known Jesus for decades. I mean, they, they don't just know of Jesus, they know the person Jesus. There are people that are in the crowd hearing him talk that went to Sabbath school with him. Right? They went to Sunday school. And that's where, where primary education actually happened at the church. So they would have, they would have been there. In, there are people probably who watched his diaper get changed. All right, there are people who know, they don't, they don't just know about Jesus, they know Jesus. And look at what it says. Many who heard him were amazed. Many were amazed. Now, what's going to happen in this moment is a tension that is still happening today. A lot of people are impressed. They're impressed. And to be honest, I, I think that we're kind of, culturally in a, in a place where we want to be impressed, but we don't want somebody to try to make an impression on our lives. We, we want to be amazed. I want to be wowed, but I don't want you to tell me how to live my life. And the people in that room, see, when Jesus, after that, the, one of the, one of the, 
actually stories in the Bible says that he sat down after he read the scriptures, which would have signified for a rabbi that they were, they were there to teach. It's not just there to read the, the Bible. He didn't just show up to impress you. Jesus was there to make an impression. And so what happens after this? Look where it goes. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these miracles that he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Matthew records that somebody in the crowd said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Mary's son, the, the brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon? We, we know he's got some younger brothers. As a matter of fact, aren't his sisters here with us today? The carpenter? And you know, Luke's gospel actually goes so far as to point out that it wasn't just some people who were saying this. It was everybody. Everybody in the room began to say, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And notice what happens in the next verse. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Now, you've probably heard it said that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think in some degrees that's true. The, the closer that we get to things, the more that we don't see their value, the more that we, we, we don't appreciate them, and we actually start to, to focus in on the flaws and the frailties, and we start to define, this is why for some of us we, we experience that, especially in the context of our marriage Right, you hear somebody say something nice about your spouse, and you're like, who are you talking about? That's not, that's not, that's not the person I live with. Right? We're, we're, why? Because we get so focused on the, the blemish. We, we don't see the beauty. I think that really what is happening here is, is a principle, and it's with greater intimacy comes greater opportunity. Jesus has decades of intimate relationships that are represented in that room. And it's as if the people are looking at him and going, can't you give us a little more? I mean, who are you to say that to me? Who are you to tell me that about life? And he's going, you need more? You need more than the decades that you've seen me live in front of you? You need more than what you've seen? With greater intimacy comes greater opportunity. Let me just illustrate that a few ways. With greater intimacy comes greater opportunity for conflict, right? This is why you have called your spouse names you would not call a stranger, all right? Why? Because the greater the intimacy, the closer the relationship, the greater the conflict. We can make a mistake by not seeing that the more intimate a relationship, 
the more opportunity for conflict. And sometimes we can define greatness in a relationship by the absence of conflict. Right? That's, not, that's not a healthy definition. And it's caused plenty of people to look around and go, well, I've got all this conflict with my spouse, but I don't have it with this friend over here. That must be a better relationship. That's not true. There's greater opportunity for conflict in intimate relationships. Jesus is actually pointing to something, that there's greater opportunity for honor. Do you notice what he made the issue? He didn't say, listen, you stiff-necked people that won't listen to me. He didn't say, hey, listen, what, what, what do you need to be impressed? No, he said it's honor. A prophet is without honor. Why does he make the issue honor? Here's the thing. Honor is a decision that we make to give authority that God has put in our lives. When you read through Ephesians 5, right, it's really clear that God sets the husband up as the leader of a home, which is a, which is a burden. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of authority and responsibility. But what does he say? He says, wives, honor your husbands which means recognize the authority that God's given them and honor that, respect that, make that grace-filled decision to honor. And here's the thing, no husband is going to be honored simply because he's perfect, because none of us are. All right, it's a grace-filled decision to look at somebody that you see all the frailty, all the failure, and to say, I'm going to honor you, which is why... When the Bible defines your relationship as a parent to your kids, it does not say it's based on performance. It says what? Honor your father and mother. And all of us that are parents love that that's not based on our performance because we know we blow it. Honor is a decision. It's a choice. And we give it not based on performance but based on grace. So the greater the level of intimacy, the greater the opportunity for honor. But there's also greater opportunity for judgment. Why? Because the closer you get to somebody, the more you're going to see the things that are broken and lost within them. And it's really easy. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's really easy to focus on that. You ever notice, you ever think about that? What do you see in somebody? What do you see in the people who are closest to you? Do, do you tend to focus on the, the, the small things that, that are difficult and challenging? Some of y'all are probably like, listen, I love my spouse, but they need to stop snoring. All right, I cannot sleep at night. I'm, I'm going on a week without sleeping good. God, just change that, please. And, and, and it's so easy to define people by the failure that we've seen. Have you ever noticed that closeness changes your perspective? The, the closer you get to something, sometimes it's harder to see it for what it really is. One, one of my favorite artists is considered a, a modern abstract artist. Her name is uh, Georgia O'Keeffe. She, um, she didn't actually paint abstract pieces, although they, they look abstract. What she did is she took a, a big picture, 
and, and she zoomed in on it. And so she would take often, it was pictures of, of things that were occurring in nature, flowers, plants, stuff like that. And she would zoom in really close to a point that you wouldn't recognize. Here's a, look at, here's a few pictures. I mean, you're looking at that, that, is, that looks pretty weird to me, just to be honest. I don't know what that is, but it's a flower. And it's really zoomed in. Here's another one. Same thing. Right? Again, flower, really zoomed in. And, and, and sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this about, about yourself, the closer we get, the harder it is to see something for what it is. The closer we get, the harder it is to see. Sometimes we experience that as we get close to somebody, right? We get close to somebody and then things feel scary because we feel as if we never really knew them at all. We, we find something out 15 years later, 20 years later, and, it, and it's scary because if that's there, then what else is there? But sometimes things feel exciting because Something is, is unearthed that we didn't know there, and, and we realize there, there's so much more to know. There's so much more to experience. And sometimes the, the closer we get, and this is almost inevitable, things feel broken. Because what we see, we, we judge on our end, we judge it to be failure. And things feel, in those moments, like a broken mess. You know, what you're looking at, what you're looking at matters. The, the Bible describes our hearts as if it has eyes, the eyes of our hearts. And, and where the eyes of your hearts are, are fixed matters, which is why I think the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Pioneer, right, which means he's, he's blazing the trail. He's the one leading. Perfecter means he's the one that's, when we get a little off course, he's reining us back in. No, come on, let's get it back in. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And when is he that? He's that when we fix our eyes on Jesus. See, here's the thing. It's really easy to get your eyes fixed on other things. Far too easy. Some of you right now might have your eyes fixed on a relationship and in the, the eyes of your heart, you're, you're looking at a person for fulfillment. You're, you're going to chase after that. You're going to sacrifice other things for that. For some of you, it might be a career or an opportunity within a business. And what happens is when your eyes get fixed on something, the eyes of your heart, you'll sacrifice everything else for them. And I hate to tell you this, but there is no relationship, there is no business endeavor that is going to take good care of you. That's going to shepherd your soul. What will is Jesus. What you fix your eyes on is inevitably where you're headed. And so we got to guard carefully what we're looking at. What are you looking at today? What are you looking at? Are you constantly looking for opportunities to have fun? What's going to be the funnest thing I can do today or tomorrow or next week? Where, where, where can I? Or 
Are you looking for opportunities instead of fun, opportunities to be faithful? Are, are you looking in people right now? Are you looking at the mess? Right, we all have our own messes. Are you looking at the mess or are you looking at the message of redemption that's being written through the mess? Are you focused on the blemish and your spouse or in your friends or in your mom and dad? Or are you focused on the beauty that's there? Here's what I know about Jesus. You'll never get close to Jesus until you see him for who he really is. And the tension in this moment is a tension we still live in. Jesus showed up in synagogue on that morning. He showed up to be a teacher. He showed up to make an impression. He didn't show up to be impressive. If you're taking notes, here's the first question. Are you looking for Jesus? The teacher. Are you looking for Jesus, the teacher? I, I think we can argue Jesus was absolutely brilliant. Probably the, the greatest organizational leader in human history. I mean, think about it. Today, we're living in what he started thousands of years ago. Absolutely brilliant. But Jesus never showed up anywhere trying to be impressive, he showed up to make an impression. And a lot of times, if we're honest, we get that a little inverted when we look at Jesus. Because we're saying, Jesus impressed me. All right, actually, actually awe me a little bit, Jesus. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually here to teach you. And the... The sentiment of that is hard for many of us to receive. Because for us to say, Jesus is in my life to teach me, means we also have to be willing to posture, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. I don't know the solution. And the truth is, that's true for every one of us. None of us know it all. None of us have all the answers. None of us know all the solutions. Everyone is trusting something to fill in the gaps of what they do not know, see, or understand. Every one of us is. And the sad thing is that in a world that is filled with so much information, with so many people around us who are trying to be impressive, it is so easy to get our eyes off of Jesus, the teacher. Now here's a question. I want you to think about this. Instead of looking for Jesus, the teacher, are you looking for Jesus, the carpenter? Isn't that what the crowd said? Isn't, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the carpenter? Right, the, the word carpenter literally means handyman. That's what it literally means. All right, 
So we think of carpenters like building things, and that's probably true. There are probably people in the audience, as Jesus is teaching, who are going to go home and have dinner on a table that Jesus built. But it's probably equally true that there are going to be people who are going to go home and, and kind of dine under a roof that Jesus fixed. Because that's what a handyman does, right? I worked for a handyman when I was in high school and in college. And you want to know when we got a call? We got a call when stuff was broke. When a pipe busted or there was a hole in the sheetrock or the, the kind of steps walking in and falling apart, that's when we got a call. That's when we showed up to fix something that was broken. And you want to know what? The people were okay with Jesus having that role. They were okay with Jesus as a carpenter, but they didn't want anything to do with Jesus as a teacher. And when he actually started trying to teach them, they got what? They got offended. See, a lot of people want Jesus when they're in trouble, but they don't want Jesus to inform how they live their lives. Oh, we'll pray all day long when we lose our job. God, I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. I need you to show up. I need, And then all of a sudden, God brings in a job. And what are you? You're going, God, you gave me this job. This is so awesome. Thank you so much. And then the pastor says, you know what you should be doing from that job? You should be giving 10% back to the church. And we're going, uh-uh. No way. That's my money. It's your money from a job that Jesus gave you. Doesn't make any sense. A lot of people want Jesus to show up when things aren't going well, but they don't want Jesus to tell them how to live their life when they think things are all under control. I'm going to remind you of something that should, in some way, kind of hurt a little bit when we receive it inside. Jesus must be your Lord to be your Savior. Now, when I talk to my kids about this, I use the word boss. Jesus must be your boss, your king, your Lord, to be your Savior. Romans 10 puts it this way. If you declare with your mouth the declaration of my life is Jesus is my Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which means I validate on the inside the claims of Jesus Christ. The gospel is true. I believe in it. If I declare that he's my Lord and I believe that the claims of Jesus, and then you will be saved. See, I don't want Jesus to be some sort of like advice column that I turn to when things aren't going well. I want Jesus to be the primary voice in my life. I want Jesus to inform my family I want him to tell me how to be a dad and a husband. I want Jesus to be the primary voice in forming my finances, my friendships. I want him to be the primary voice in every area of my life. And over the next few weeks, there's one passage that I want to take you to. Because I believe in this cultural moment, we need to see what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Really, the entire series, the three weeks that we're going to be in this series, are all going to be based out of this one short passage, Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And I'm going to read the entire thing 
today. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn back and tear you into pieces. Now I'm going to go back and really focus in on the first few verses. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now I want to I want to give you a little freedom with this because when Jesus says, if you're taking notes, it's the first thing. When Jesus says, do not judge, he's not asking you to stop thinking critically. And far too often, I'm going to be honest, Christians have used this as an excuse to stop thinking critically. I know my kids are smoking weed. I'm not judging. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I know my friend over here stealing from, from work, you know. But I, I'm not, I don't want to judge. I don't want to judge what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got this friend over here who's encouraging me to be unfaithful to my spouse. But I'm not, I'm not judging. I don't want to. No! That's dumb. Okay? The, the Bible never it gives us an excuse to stop, stop thinking critically about what's going on around us. I mean, some of us would benefit greatly from actually starting to think critically about where we are and what's going on around us. And you know, one of the things that the Bible uses in that is to say, don't, and this is so unique for the Bible, don't try to judge an idea versus an idea. That's the way logically and rationally we're taught in, in, in logic to examine ideas. Put that idea against that idea and examine it. The Bible says, no, look at the fruit it produces. Look at the fruit. Like, why are you going to take business advice from somebody who can't even run their own? Why are you going to listen to somebody tell you that you ought not to let your husband treat you that way when they're on their fourth marriage and about to leave? Why are you trying to take financial advice from somebody you know can't keep money in their bank account and is always having to be bailed out? Look for the fruits. Look for the fruits. This is not an excuse to stop thinking critically. What's happening here, if you're taking notes, this is it. Jesus is asking us to stop projecting harsh, negative verdicts, especially on our brothers and sisters in Christ. I know none of us would do that, okay? None of us would have somebody around us doing something that kind of irks us, that we know is probably sinful, and I know none of us would ever say, oh, did you see they're doing that? They're going to hell. That's what it means to be judge. It's to pronounce over somebody the end result of what's going on in their lives. 
And honestly, that's pure sarcasm because most of us have done that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 please. Please don't do that. Can I remind you of something I've said a bunch before? You can make a point or you can make a difference, but rarely can you make both. And, and, and I, don't, I don't know if you're paying attention to the world that we live in right now, but it really seems like people want to make a point today. It really seems like we're willing to sacrifice the feelings of someone else just to say something stupid online. Like we're going to win someone over from some snarky comment that we make. Instead of actually choosing to love and care for people and value them and make a difference in their life. I, I love the way John Stott reflects this. He says, this commandment does not commission a requirement to be blind. In other words, this isn't just God saying, no, don't see. It is instead a plea to be generous. And you might be like, what? Generous? Generous? I'm supposed to, like, give them money? No. Generous isn't just about money. Generous is about what we have been given in abundance, having the willingness to give it away. And you want to know what you have been given in abundance? Grace and forgiveness. The big point that Jesus is making here is what you harbor against a brother or a sister doesn't compare to what God could hold against you. It doesn't compare. And the way we treat that tension is absolutely defining in our relationship with God. One commentator said, to be quick to judge others is to invite God's judgment on yourself. When we are absolutely quick to pull the trigger, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. I know none of their backstories. I know none of the circumstances surrounding this. When we're, when we're that kind of person, what happens is we literally invite the judgment of God onto our own lives. This isn't foreign. Because you've prayed a prayer a thousand times that has the exact same sentiment in it. Father, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. I mean, be honest. Is that a standard you really want to live in? Because many of us don't. And I think the question that Jesus is trying to point us to is, are you creating a personal culture of grace or judgment? I mean, are, are the wake that follows you behind in life, is it you having judged this person and judged this person and judged this person, or are you leaving behind a wake of grace and forgiveness? Jesus tells a story in Matthew 18 that illustrates this perfectly. It's actually a, a, what's considered to be a classic rabbinical parable. I mean, he's, he's telling the story the way that most rabbis in the first century would have told this story. And he uses some terminology. He starts talking about a, a king 
who's going to settle accounts. Now, everybody in the audience would have known. King means God. Okay, I'm with you, Jesus. And he's going to settle accounts. That means he, he's talking about the final judgment. This really difficult idea that one day I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account for my life. And he's going to have seen everything I've ever done and all of my failures. I'm going to have to stand there and say, yeah, I blew that. And see, the thing is about God's grace and mercy changes the outcome of his judicial statement over my life. But it does not change if I missed or blew an opportunity. So I'm going to have to stand and give an account. And so when Jesus talks about a king who's settling accounts, everybody knows what he's talking about. And a servant is brought before the king, who owes him a lot of money. Now, let me put this in modern-day kind of dollars for you. The, the amount owed is somewhere between $500 and $700 million. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd have a hard time getting my hands on that kind of money. <laughs> That's a lot of money. And it's a servant who's brought before the king, and the king immediately makes a judgment. Put him in prison until he can pay it back. Now, the audience is going, there's no way. It's too much money. He won't be able to pay it back. There's no way. Even if his family and his kids and his friends and everybody rallied around him, they can't come up with that much money. He's just a servant. So the servant throws himself down before the king. Forgive me. Forgive me. I failed you. I failed you. Please forgive me. And the king has mercy on him. And here's what the king does. You're forgiven all the debt. Wow. I mean, $500 million of debt forgiven in one stroke of the king's pen. Forgiven. And the audience would have been like, yeah, we get it, Jesus. You're talking about how merciful and good God is. Hooray, God. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The servant then leaves the king and walks outside. And as soon as he gets outside, he sees another servant who owes him a hundred days wages. Now to put that again in dollars, it's somewhere between ten and fifteen thousand dollars. Again, it's a lot of money. But he was just forgiven five hundred million dollars. How does he react? The crowd's going, oh, he's going he's gonna to forgive. He's, no. He charges him, tackles him, begins to choke him out, and then he drags him to the prison where, as someone who was indebted to him, he had the legal right to put him in prison. And that's what he does. And the king hears this story. What? Break him to me. So Jesus wraps up the story this way. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you, you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in his anger, the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. 
until he could pay back all he owed. Because he was unwilling to see that the small amount he was owed didn't compare to the large amount that he had already been forgiven. He ends up worse than he was when it started. What did the king said originally? No, put him in prison. Put him in prison until he can pay. Now the king said, no, torture him. Torture, torture him until he can pay it back. What you harbor against the brother does not compare to what God could hold against you. But the closer you get to people, the more intimate the relationship, the more you'll see. And sometimes what you see is going to scare you. I didn't know that was there. I don't know what else is there. Sometimes what you see is going to excite you. Man, I'm, wow, I don't know what this could be. I mean, there's so much. And then sometimes what you see in the hearts of the people you love is going to break you. Let me remind you of something that you, you already know. You, you can't change other people. You can manipulate. You can control. But you can't change. Now we can serve. I can serve you in your weakness. I can love you in your weakness. I can pray for you. But ultimately... As your friend, as a spouse, as a mom or a dad, we can't change somebody else. But you can change what you focus on. You can change what you focus on. And I believe in this moment, the crowd could only see Jesus as the carpenter. That was their confession. They could not change their perspective. And when Jesus is saying don't judge, he's saying no. Get your perspective off of people's failures and get it on what God's doing in their lives. Stop trying to play God and pronounce things over them that only God should. Start being somebody who gives grace. See, I think the question for us today is, what are you focusing on? What will you focus on Jesus and your relationship with Him? Because there is so much that in that we have failed Him, that we have missed the mark with Him. That we haven't been the person that he created us to be. So many opportunities that we've wasted. Who am I to look at somebody else? Who am I to pronounce over somebody else's judge? No, I'm, simple. I'm somebody here who's been given a lot of grace. And my, my best bet in life is to give a lot of grace too. See, when you recognize how much Jesus has forgiven you of, it will dramatically change the way you view other people. Can we pray together?
Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, thank you that you have not once failed. That in the middle of a moment like this, when there is so much that feels confusing and convoluted, God, you are not the author of confusion. You are the God who brings clarity. And right now, God, help, help us just to clearly see how good you are in our lives. How trustworthy you have always been. And help us to clearly see how desperately we need you. With every head bowed and all of our eyes closed, nobody getting up and moving for a moment, let me just ask you today, is there something going on in your life right now that the, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you? And right now, maybe... You're a little bit like that person in the crowd and you, you've been looking for Jesus as a carpenter and you've called on him when things were difficult and challenging but things have been good and you've resisted doing some things that you know God has said to do and today the invitation right now is just to say Jesus forgive me for resisting what you've tried to do in my life. All that God wants you to do, all that He's leading you into is good, and it is good for you. Maybe today, you've been so focused on the faults of people around you that you've allowed yourself to become judgmental. And in doing so, you have pushed the grace and mercy of God away. You have taken your perspective off of how good and gracious God has been to you. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.